Assume nothing. Question everything and start thinking. This is the Thinking Atheist Podcast, hosted by Seth Andrews. It was just a few weeks ago we were talking again about how so many of our Christmas holiday traditions are rooted in paganism. That's always fun to talk about, and it's true. And there is a terrific Wondrium series on this. It's called The Pagan World, Ancient Religions Before Christianity. Dr. Hans Friedrich Mueller talks about things like the similarities of Zeus to Yahweh, the ancient sacrifice rituals that predate the Old Testament, How the Romans came in and tried to override paganism and stamp Christianity on everything. The history is there. It's so very telling. Of course, this is just one of thousands of Wondrium courses, documentaries, tutorials, content ranging from religion to travel to cooking to how to play guitar. Stream anywhere, anytime, ad-free with the Wondrium app and just think about how much you can learn with a subscription to Wondrium. And to ring in 2023, Wondrium is offering my listeners a 23-day free trial. But it's only available if you sign up with my special URL. Go to wondrium.com slash Seth. That's W-O-N-D-R-I-U-M dot com slash Seth. Wondrium.com slash Seth. Okay, this is the audio of a recent conversation that I had in my office. I had the privilege of hosting Forrest Valkai. He is a science communicator and biologist and activist. He runs the Renegade Science Teacher channel on YouTube. And Erica, also known as Gutsick Gibbon. She's a primatologist, evolutionary biologist, zoologist, and more. She does a lot of debunking of creationism, and she does a ton of science education about the fact of evolution. And somehow I was able to get both of them in the same room, and it was awesome. If you want to watch, the YouTube link is in the description box of the show. Enjoy. You know how at the Large Hadron Collider, they take an atom or two atoms or whatever, and they rocket them around, metaphorically speaking, to smash against each other and open a black hole or set fire to the universe. That's what I want to happen today. (laughs) I brought you two to smash your brains together as uh, we just kind of see what happens next. And having you two in the same space, I know it's going to be unpredictable. 
Let's just do that. We just came back from dinner. And uh, welcome to the Chateau Andrews, by the way. We are, uh, we're sitting here in my studio, casually just hanging out. We've been talking and we spoke over dinner about, I guess I'll start with ID, intelligent design. You make a distinction between intelligent design and creationism. Yes, no? I, I would. It's it's more that ID nestles within creationism. Yeah, it's, um, it sounds like ID is the way that they try to make it sound credible. It know? is. Well, and it's round two or three, right? The, right. the, the Kitzmiller versus Dover trial, which is our, our first introduction in the public sphere to intelligent design, comes long after the sordid battle of um, getting creationism uh, sort of as a strictly religious from a Christian perspective out of the school system. So ID was sort of the attempt to secularize the idea of this this vast intelligent designer who might be tinkering in all of biology and is responsible for the biodiversity today. So but instead of saying Father God is out there, they say something set all this in motion. Yeah. Someone? I don't even know if they even go that far, do they? It's, someone? I've, I've heard it be a someone from time to time. Generally, the idea is to make it just sound as not super scriptural as possible, but instead rely on what they specifically don't understand as evidence for what they don't think we understand. And that's the wonderful thing about science is that that's not how science works. <laughs> what is that? Uh, I've got a mug downstairs that said, it says science doesn't give a fuck what you believe. And I just, my favorite mug lately. I don't know why. Go ahead, Eric. No, I, I was going to say, you know, make no mistake, the folks who are putting intelligent design forward, these are not individuals who have any doubt in their mind as to who the designer is. You won't find very many people out there, in fact, I, I struggle to come up with a single one who is an intelligent design advocate where the designer is not um, God from the Christian religion or from uh, another sort of Abrahamic yes. stance. It's, it's always... God, it seems. And nowhere was this more evident than, as I like to always bring it back to Kitzmiller versus Dover, because that's like the classic for intelligent design. Explain what Kitzmiller versus Dover was. Yeah, so back in 2005, um, intelligent design was being put forward as this potential toe-to-toe uh, -to -toe adversary, something that could be taught side-by-side -side with evolution as this alternative idea. Maybe things didn't evolve by chance. Maybe instead there was a designer. And typically this doesn't mean a, a tinkerer or someone who sets in, you know, evolution in motion. Typically this is strictly in reference to someone who's actively at work creating things either ex nihilo uh, directly or, or indeed very involved. And the, the Kitzmiller versus Dover trial was the, the response by the people of Dover to this. It was their outcry against this idea because as I hope we'll discuss, intelligent design as an idea is vacuous. There's not much to it. And I, I don't mean that to be insulting per se. I mean that in, in a very um, literal sense. There's, there's nothing to it. There's no model there, as we'll discuss. But the reason why I think you can very clearly say that it's always the one of the Abrahamic gods is because during this trial, the intelligent design textbook that was being put forward of pandas and people, um, I believe it was Eugenie Scott, actually, who was involved in this, it goes back and starts looking at the previous iterations of the, the designer word in this book every time the designer was brought up. And if you take it back far enough in time, you'll find that it goes from being the designer to the creator, right? Which is explicitly very Judeo-Christian. But fascinatingly enough, and this just tickles me every time, uh, a transitional species was uncovered. The sea design proponentists, right? So it goes from creation proponents to 
intelligent design. And, and it's, a, it's a typo that contains bits and pieces of both words. Um, a perfect example of, of another, yet another deadly transitional species to creationism. <laughs> so they're just being sh shaky. I mean, they know we're not going to be able to get, at, at this point in time, we're not going to be able to get into the game or stay in the game with overtly theocratic language. So now let's just say, well, teach the controversy. Is it a complexity only thing or mostly thing? Hey, it's wildly complex and crazy, et cetera. Therefore, it must be designed. Like, don't engineers want the simplistic or the most simple version yeah, of a design? That's, that's definitely a big part of it is, is, is complexity. The, the idea that, like, if I can't con conceive of how this thing could have evolved, then there's no way that it could have evolved. And especially if, you know, if everybody doesn't know how something evolved, then really it's just not possible because if science doesn't know a thing, that means it's magic, right? And like what really, uh, what I tend to see happening more and more is that they will then start to co-opt evolutionary language and ideas and try to restructure them as creationist ideas. So it's not homology. It's not a common ancestor. It's a common designer using the same techniques on lots of different things. And it's not a you know something that we see a vestigial structure or leftover. That's something that you don't understand yet, that the creator put there on purpose for some other thing that we just haven't discovered yet. That's called an exaptation, is when we change something <laughs> later on. But don't worry about that, because that's not real, right? And so what happens is it becomes this idea, the entire thing is based out of the argument of, of personal credulity. I don't know how it happened, therefore it didn't. But these other ideas that we can see clearly work actually mean what I mean, and you're just misinterpreting reality. Have you noticed that science is both a tool of the devil, faith-based, and completely unreliable, and it's also the biggest tool in our arsenal to prove God. And yeah. you notice the, oh, yeah. it's both things at the same time. It has right? to be. Just as long as you don't go to one of these liberal colleges where of they course. teach math and stuff. Of <laughs> course. That will lead you to the wrong statistical right, conclusions. Right. Yeah, it tends to boil down to one of two arguments from, from the ID proponents. You see the, the argument from incredulity, as Forrest noted, uh, and you see irreducible complexity, right? This argument that we have these structures that exist, whether it's the blood clotting cascade or the immune system or the bacterial flagellum, right? These structures that they simply cannot exist because every single part of them is required and must have evolved at the exact same time. And that is statistically impossible. These are the, the irreducible, irreducibly complex um, forms in biology. And, you know, I've been doing this for a while and Forrest has as well. And I've yet to come up or come across, rather, I guess I should say, a single truly irreducibly uh, complex form. And moreover, I've seen forms that in the past were unexplainable, and you know, creationist unexplainable just means unanswered, yeah. right? This is just yeah. something we haven't figured out yet, that have through the years become explainable. This is the, the wonder of science, is that when we have this open question, we don't throw our hands up and say, well, I, I guess that's it, we're SOL. We try to suss it out. And um, this this was on beautiful display again at the, the Kitzmiller versus Dover trial where Michael Behe, classic intelligent design proponent, noted that we have no evidence for the for the evolution of the blood cloning cascade. How could it possibly happen? Every step is is incremental um, in, in such a way that it, it would have had to happen all at once. Uh, to make sure I understood this. you. The blood clotting cascade? Yes. Okay. I'm yes. Gonna, the, I'm the, a lay the person series. playing along. Sure, sure. And you're flying along like Forrest does <laughs> at light speed. So I got to stop and say, okay, what is the blood clotting cascade being developed? What are we talking about? Yeah. So it's when you when you cut your finger, right, there's a series of biochemical reactions that are, um, they sort of induce one another in order to trigger your blood to clot and close off the wound. So you, so you stop bleeding. 
And um, because each of these things induces the other, the idea is that they would have had to evolve simultaneously, and that's statistically very unlikely. Now, evolution as a concept, critically, when we're talking about something that comes into being a, a new morphologic feature, right, or, or a biochemical pathway, or even just a de novo protein, by definition, everything along the way must aid the organism fitness-wise, right? You're, you're not going to have something persist, evolve and persist and, and go out into the population. I guess drift is an exception to this, but typically it, it, it must benefit the fitness of the organism. So the idea is that it's hard to get these things in, in stepwise, but lo and behold, in the case of the blood clung cascade or the immune system or the bacterial flagellum, each individual step is in and of itself beneficial to the organism. The precursor to the flagella, for example, was, was effectively like a, um, like a stinger for, for the fact, it was like a, it administered- Like a, a funky weird cilia. Yeah. It could do extra stuff. Yeah, right. yeah. And it administered toxins and it, it aided, it, it aided the, um, the, the bacteria, um, either in defense, I believe, or, or procuring resources. There's that but, word acceptation again, yeah, by the way. Right. <laughs> That's what that would be. Right. But, but the idea is that, you know, you've got Behe sitting up here in this court case at the Kitzmiller versus Dover trial, and he, you know, says vehemently, we don't have support for this. The cascade cannot evolve for blood clotting. And, you know, we, we have our prosecution who walks up and they set the books on the table, 10 books, a stack high, and Behe peeks out from behind it. He's getting another stack of books, sets it on the table. Behe's looking at it again. He's coming back with another stack. And before you know it, the guy's swamped with books, all books detailing the ideas behind how the blood clotting cascade evolved, not just one potential pathway, but multiple, right? Um, because there are multiple ways to, to skin a cat, as it were. Evolution doesn't simply have one solution to one problem, which is why we, you know, Ironically, we have too many solutions to pick from. Um, so the real question then is, if we have all of this support, and, and Behe is in fact this, this well-credentialed um, scientist who, who's fighting the Darwinists, why didn't he know about these, these articles, these books? Um, and you'll still find him out there. I, I'm sure Behe's a lovely person, but, but he still does repeat this, bang this old drum on irreducible complexity. And the way that this works is once you show one irreducibly complex structure, is not in fact irreducibly complex, that idea is out of the water, right? Because it shows that these, that these, um, these structures that seem impossible to derive are in fact derivable. So I'm looking at somebody like Michael Behe next to a Stephen Meyer from the Discovery Institute, another ID guy, next to a Ken Miller, right? I mean, Ken Miller is one of those guys who is a genuine proponent of evolutionary science. But I mean, how do we lay people know the difference between one PhD and another? How do we figure that one out? Anybody who has ever been to any kind of college for a science degree knows that anybody can get a PhD. Uh, I, I can't tell you the amount of times like when I have pile high and deep kind of thing. Well, it's, the thing as someone who doesn't have one, this is bold of me to say. <laughs> like as, there's there's so many times where I've been in class and I'm like, if this dude could get through college, I can too. And so like the thing is, like you always have to ask, you know, like Erica said, number one, are they speaking, you know, outside of their area of expertise too far? Which, you know, anybody if you're talking to, you know, a, a common audience of just random people, you know, I talk about physics sometimes. I'm not a physicist, but I know enough to explain some basic stuff to kids. But if somebody asked me a serious question about like some crazy particle physical thing about how these mesons are forming in some other, if you talk about the Hadron Collider, like you're talking, I have friends that work at the Hadron Collider. I would call one of them and be like, hey, bro, what's going on with this? Because I wouldn't even know where to begin on the research on it. Even now with things that I know I know about, when somebody asks me a serious question, the first thing I do is go to Google Scholar and I look at what the literature is saying. I pull up five or six papers on it. I kind of see what the general vibe is 
so that what I'm saying isn't just what I remember from the last five years or whatever, what I was in school last time, whatever, like you know, that's, if I'm gonna talk about something, I want to be able to at least know what I don't know about it going into that conversation. And what do your peers say about it? I mean, I'm, this isn't an argument from authority, but to be able to say, the consensus position by people in your field. Precisely, yeah. Agrees, disagrees, at least challenges. Yeah, so if someone's gonna come out and say that, you know, evolution is incorrect, which by the way, evolution is the most central fundamental idea in biology. All, and I'm not exaggerating, all of biology is wrong if evolution is wrong. You know, all only an evolutionist would Right, say right. If someone's gonna come out and say that with a straight face, they better have something significant to back it up with. And just, I think so, or I, you can't explain this, or I have a degree in, in you know, geology, therefore I know that it's not gonna cut it. So for someone who's you know a layperson hearing these people with big fancy names and accolades and credentials and all that stuff, you just have to ask, you know, are they an extreme outsider in this field? Just because science is controversial doesn't mean it's wrong. But if the vast, vast majority of their peers are saying this doesn't make any sense, that's at least gonna give you an inkling on where you need to start doing your research to get figure out if you wanna take this person seriously. We were taught the caricature of evolution, right? Um, it was that old uh, the March of Progress. Was it nineteenth century yeah. illustration of Darwin? You know, and then he had the monkey body or the ape yeah. body and the yeah. Darwin beard, and they're like, ah, oh, you know, this is ridiculous. So, I mean, we were indoctrinated to make fun of the idea of evolution, and then everything else just bounced right off that. Uh, when did you finally? I mean, you came from a. Was it a homeschool thing? Was it a, a Christian school? Yeah, yeah. My my folks are religious, and so they wanted me to go to a Christian school, and they they didn't particularly care how the Christian school was operating its its science classes. I mean, I was in middle school, so they they found a Christian school, they sent me to it, and uh, lo and behold, they they taught young Earth creationism. Gotta love it. So like straight up six thousand years. Six thousand year Earth. We hung with dinosaurs. We Jesus is riding in on a dromaeosaur, right? <laughs> I mean, it's it's the classic stuff. And you know the fossils are interestingly enough. I, I mean, I, I mentioned this at dinner, right? But one of the big turning points for me was finding out that these fossils that they told us to by name, right? The one I remember is they said. There is no Homo habilis, right? This is a, a transitional species. All species are, of course, transitional because everything is constantly um, adapting to its environment at a population level. Um, but Homo habilis doesn't exist. And I remember when they first said that in class, I thought, why does it have a name, yeah. right? Why did they name it if it doesn't exist? But it kind of went over my head at the time. And I got the opportunity to, to leaf through our, our hand-me-down public school textbooks. And it was doing that that I... I had the, the epiphany, right? Because I'm flipping through the human evolution section. I turn the page and there's Homo habilis, right? <laughs> there's Australopithecus afarensis that precedes it. There's Homo erectus that comes next, right? Um, and you know, human evolution is a bush, of course. I'm, I'm, I'm simplifying it here in a linear and a genetic way. Uh, but, but there they were. So why are we saying that, that they weren't, right? What, what was the goal there? And I think we, we know by now the, the goal is to instill this this doubt. It's to cast a doubt in, in big S science and academia. They're trying to deceive you and trying to trick you. Uh, the irony, of course, being that that's exactly what they were doing to me. And the second you get access to information, you know, you, you could just look this stuff up for yourself, yeah. right? Like, and I'm sure you do the same for us. Oh, but yeah. it's like, if you don't believe us, just 
go check it out. We, right? Our line was, you know, I'm not a monkey or my grandfather wasn't a monkey. Then I'm talking to Aaron Raw and he's like, well, actually, you are a monkey. And I was like, <laughs> <laughs> well, now hang on just now. So I've got you two here. Wait, we didn't just, we and, and monkeys had a common ancestor, but we're also monkeys. I need help. Somebody walk me through this. What's so the, going on? The whole idea is, is, you know, these these nested hierarchies. The, the way that we talk about, you know, our, our cladistics, our phylogeny, our family tree. There are, you know, morphological and genetic characteristics that we can point to and say, okay, so this is what that type of thing. A monkey has XYZ characteristics and a fish has all these characteristics and a bird has all these characteristics. And the thing is, when you actually look at, you know, the, the, these characteristics, they, they stack you know, and so because of our evolutionary history, yeah, we're a monkey because an ape is a type of thing. So in common language, a monkey has a tail and an ape doesn't. But actually, as far as the family's concerned, this is a part of that branch and humans are a part of that tree as well. And so like it just stacks up like this. So for the exact same reason why I can't actually say you are a fish, you really are. You are also a monkey as well. It's just, it's all part of the, the beautiful tree that you're a part of. There's, well, no, sorry, go ahead. No, no, I want to add on to that, right? Like, let's just, let's just brute force this. Um, do you have a nucleated, you know, a nucleus in your cells? The answer is yes, because so do I, right? Yep. So we're eukaryotes, right? Um, do you have the, the characteristics of an animal, right? Do, do we have... Um, your motile, yeah. your your uh, uh, heterotrophic. Heterotrophic. Yeah. It's, yep. it's yep. the nature of the blastula, right? Yep. You don't um, have cell oh, walls. You're, you're yeah. just sitting here without your cell walls. Look at you. Right. You have your, yeah. Ugh. Oh, disgusting. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. No I was chloroplast. trying to think, how do you define animals? I'm I, you obviously better than me, but I remember. It's like, down to the cells. Horse is right. Is it really? Yeah, I mean, I, I thought a lot of it had to do wall. with you have a urinary system and a, a reproductive system. Oh, and we'll you, get there. And yeah. We haven't even gotten that far. Oh, I just in front of the We could still have like hydras in here. No, you're still under the Microscope, and I'm jumping over here to the macro. What was I thinking? We're in. We're, we just got into kingdom. We yeah, passed through we're domain. Right in the kingdom, right? Yeah. So, so do you know? Do you have um? Do you have a nerve cord? Right? Okay. Yeah. Back? Sure. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Cool. So, like, you're chordate, right? Do you have a backbone surrounding that nerve cord? Do you have a vertebra that's around it? Yeah. Okay. Cool. So you're a vertebrate. He's got a post-anal tail. Yeah, he's got a post-anal tail. We know it. Yeah, he's got the post-anal tail. So he's sitting, and he's got he's got memories, and he's got hair. So he's definitely going to be sitting in the mammal clade. Look at look at the dexterous hands that you have. Your binocular color vision. Oh snap! Do you have claws or fingernails? Yeah, of course. Looks like fingernails. Precisely. Probably. Yeah, and you've got very mobile ankle joints, so you're in the primate order. Okay, so so now we. We've settled. You're you're definitely a mat. First, you're definitely an animal. You're a karyote. You're an mammal. You're a chordate. You're a vertebrate. You're a primate after being a mammal, right? Because you've got memory glands, um, in in development at least. Okay, well, like let's look at your um, let's look at your nostrils. They face downward, right? So you're a catarine. Cool. You're a catarine primate. That's a type of monkey. Yep, yep. Um, you're also an anthropoid if you want to take it a, a little bit further. Yeah, there's um, really good shoulders going yeah, on, you and do. you don't have an exposed tail right now, so yeah. that narrows it down quite a bit more. Well, and of course, you you are an ape, right? You have a long gestation. You were in your mother for a long time. You have a long life lifespan. You have a childhood, right? You have a two one two three dental formula. You have an enhanced prefrontal cortex. Um, I'm not seeing a diasterna, and your canines are tiny. You got so little bitty canines. I'm pretty sure you have a hyoid bone as well. I can't really tell from here, but I could cut you. And that's going to get you into hominin. Yep. Right. So, so all of these characteristics, and like critically, I think that it's important when when you're talking, especially to creationists, right? Take humans out of it. All these categories still stand. Yep. Right. These categorizations were created uh, in sort of a, a very um, 
brute way, right? The general categories by, by Linnaeus way back when. And, you know, he famously looked at humans and he was like, if, if I should not put man with anthropoid or manthropoid with man, um, I, you know, I'm going to end up bringing the, the, the wrath of all the theologians down upon me. And, and perhaps I should, because that's so clearly where humans fit in. We have all the characteristics that each of these steps along the ladder of life has, and it just turns out that that's where we fit. Whether humans are involved or not, you want to construct the tree completely with humans absent and then say, okay, now that we've got the whole thing ready to go, where do we fall? Yep. And you will nest as an animal, you will nest as a chordate, you'll nest as a primate, you'll nest as an anthropoid, you'll nest as a caterine, you'll nest as a hominid, you'll nest as a hominin, and your species is homo sapiens. Um, and genetics, like, of course, the modern synthesis, right? All of this was set in motion um, way before the, the advent of genetics. But then genetics comes along. And just, oh, my God, it knocked it out of the water. I do want to add, before we get all the way to genetics, really quick if I can, yeah. there was another branch of this that was just another step in the road that I thought was so cool. Because even after Linnaeus, and even after we were for sure like, okay, yeah, no, we have to put ourselves here, we still tried to set ourselves apart. And so we were the tool makers. Yep. We were the one, you know, that's what made us, we weren't like any other animal. We weren't even really an ape, because apes don't make tools, you know what I mean? Man, the tool, always only man. man and the tool maker is <laughs> the what we were. And then the my female. freaking, my hero, Jane Goodall, goes out there with a pair of binoculars and just watches a group of chimpanzees for months at a time and sees, oh, look, Jonathan Graybeard's out there with a stick and he's fishing for termites. And look, they're banging rocks to crack nuts. And look, they're using moss to sponges to, to drink water. And she reports all this back. And uh, Leaky, I think it was, yeah. uh, uh, said, she says, look, clearly they're making tools. They're doing the things that we're not supposed to be able. And Leaky says, well, we either need to redefine tool or we need to redefine man. Which one are we going to do? Or consider chimps human. Or consider chimps human. That's exactly. right. That was the third. I forgot about that. Yeah. yeah. Or so it's either chimps are humans or tools are what we think they are or we are what we think we are. And that was a big, another huge, another shift in that thinking where all of a sudden, oh shit, actually, you know, we're a part of the natural world just as much as the natural world is part of us. Right. And, you know, we tend to think, too, with with the apes, like, oh, well, the chimpanzees just termite fish. They just use rocks to crack open nuts. They just use moss to uh, to sponge up water. Well, they also sharpen sticks to skewer bush babies and they coordinate hunts among their groups in yeah. order to to capture colobus monkeys and eat them as meat. Um, they, they preferentially form alliances with one another in what can only be described as politics. They lie and scheme and mourn their dead and play tricks on each other and laugh when they're tickled. They do all of these different things that, that we've previously, because after, of course, it was the toolmaker, right? After mm -hmm. we got that taken from us, well, humans do something different. Yeah. There's something about us. We, we live and laugh and love and we have all these characteristics <laughs> that set us apart. Um, but, but, you know, I, I struggle to find even one that actually exists only in humans. It's, it's very difficult to point at something that, that humans have that, that is in truly and entirely unique, categorically, as opposed to everything else. Because clearly we take some things and dial it up to 11, just as other organisms do. Oh, for sure, yeah. Um, That's what being a generalist, specialist, weird hybrid combo that we are is all about. Right, exactly. And, you know, we, we specialize in, in different areas of our societies, and lo and behold, chimpanzees do too. They're, they're toolboxes. The tools that they use differs depending on the community that you're looking at. This is culture. This is passing down information from generation to generation with arbitrary rules, right? This isn't just response stimulus, you know, me crush nut, me make rock, right? They have preferences on the types of rocks that they utilize dependent on the society of chimps that you're looking at. 
This is very familiar behavior. And that's the biggest thing is like, you don't like, it's not just that they're making the tools because you could easily make the argument like, okay, yeah, they have the instinct. They're making the tools because that's what they're supposed to. They're like a beaver cutting down a tree. But no, we actually see parents teaching children. No, 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 no. Don't get that stick. That stick's too flimsy. Yeah. Make sure you pull all the leaves off. Don't leave that one on. You know, they're showing, they have this generational knowledge. They're passing this on. They're actually developing a material culture between themselves. And what's more, like, you know, Erica alluded to all these diff different emotions and expressions and things. We see murder premeditated murder we see we see hate and we see love and we see compassion and we see empathy and we see grief we see all these things that we thought were humans and i know there's some intelligent design creationist person out there saying well the second a chimpanzee makes a pumpkin spice latte i'll believe it but like <laughs> yeah. we it really depends on where you're gonna draw that line because every single time we say this is what humans do and only humans do nature slaps us in the face every single time well and this becomes worse when you look at the fossil record absolutely right because it is here that we see the types of tools that humans use, which, okay, because that's what they did, right? Once everything else could use tools, right? With Once other animals, I guess it should say, that the other apes could use tools. Well, we just changed the type of tools. We use these special Yeah, yeah, no, yeah. We, we actually broke the rock. It's they just smacked the rock. Tools, right? Well, what do you think a Lamequian tool started out? They broke the rock because they smacked the rock, and then you got this far. <laughs> next next three million years, we're all just set in stone. Set in stone. There, there yeah, you go. Sorry. And, Didn't and mean who's, for that. And who's associated with these, with these stone tools, right? Some yeah. of these oldest stone tools. It's not Homo sapiens. Uh, Absolutely not. Right. It's something with half a quarter of the brain case size, depending on which you truly accept as the first stone tools. And I suspect that as we continue to look, this is going to get pushed further back in time, as tends to happen with a lot of these technologies that we sort of isolate to ourselves as, as what makes us special. So I'm going to pull a Ken Ham on you here, and we're going to talk about kinds versus species. What's a kind? What's a kind of animal like Noah's Ark, right? Because one of the arguments against Noah, one of the many, many, many arguments against just the physics of Noah's Ark is how do you get all the goddamn animals on freaking <laughs> right? Yeah. How would you get all of the species of the planet's animals? And one of the responses is, and it's supposed to make sense, is, well, they weren't species, they were kinds. Take me down that road. Kind, from what I can gather, is a, a, a taxonomic classification that falls somewhere between class and family, but isn't an order, but also might be a genus, but not usually. <laughs> well, anyway, is kind any kind of scientific term? No. No? Honestly, I, I've puzzled and puzzled and puzzled this. And the conclusion that I've come to as to what a kind is, it's whatever they needed to be in that given moment. Yeah. That's what a kind is, right? It is whatever order of, of classification, whatever level, I guess I should say, of classification that they need it to be to explain whatever it is you're throwing at them. That's what a kind is in that given moment. There is a reason this isn't consistent. Um, and I'm sure you've seen this as well. The, the list of the, of the kinds that Answers in Genesis proposes, it's really interesting because it's very specific when the animals are small and it's very broad when the animals are big. Right. This is exactly the opposite of what it should be because small animals tend to have shorter generation times and large animals tend to have longer generation times. So clearly this is flip-flopped to be most convenient for them. Um, at least with regard to getting everything on the Ark. When they have to get off and hyper-evolve and hyper-speciate, that just creates another issue down the line. But, you know, kinds are not a real thing. They're not a real terminology as of now. It's kind of the same thing as, like, when we look at, you know, so when you're doing cladistics and you're trying to figure out, like, who's related to who, you have what's called a monophyletic group, which is everything in this branch and also its common ancestor, just this, this whole family altogether. Um, and then you can have a paraphyletic group, which is 
all the grouping together, but not all of the ancestors. This is kind of just wrapped up in here, and you're skipping some out. And then you have a polyphyletic group, which is like some of these and some of these, and they look a lot alike. And so they were cool. Yeah, we're gonna call. And that's what we get with kinds. It's just like you know, there's the whale kind. Well, we're talking about <laughs> whales, dolphins, and porpoises. Do narwhals fit in here or not? Because they're a little bit different. Tooth or not tooth? Exactly, yeah. What, what are we drawing this line? The whales! You know the whales. But if we're talking about, like, like you know, felids, well, then, you know, the tigers are totally different than the cat kind because there's no way they could have evolved from one to the other, right? That doesn't make any sense. And so the tiger kind and the cat... Well, what the fuck are we talking about? Then, If, if we're going to draw that line, then why are we drawing a line with this other thing over here? It reminds me, this is slightly unrelated, but it kind of ties in. Stephen Jay Gould, this really, really famous evolutionary biologist, uh, spent a lot of time studying fish. Ichthyology was a big thing for him because you can learn a lot about evolution studying fish. And his conclusion towards the end of his career was, there's no such thing as a fish. It's just, it's, just, there's, it's just the lump term for a thing living in the ocean. And if you look up, actually, the definition of fish, it's madness. It's a poikilothermic, mostly at least aquatic, usually has scales, but if it doesn't have scales, then that's okay, too. And it's sometimes, and it's just this nonsense, because it's this crazy paraphyletic group. It doesn't include everything, because like I said a minute ago, you're a fish. You fit in the clade. So for us to say fish and not talk about you, we have to leave a huge amount of stuff out. So we have to have all these twists and turns and accepts and unless and but and and. And that is something that we can back up with genetic evidence and we can back up with a fossil record. And we can actually draw a pattern. When we're talking about kinds, it's just the things that look like that. And that's like the very beginning of zoology that they never grew out of. You know what I mean? So um, if... I mentioned Ken Ham. I got to talk about the Ark Encounter. <laughs> that great, to. that great on. science museum. Come on, you're, I, you're I, contractually I obligated to talk about. The I museum. was there. I don't know if you've seen the videos. Have oh you yeah, it? oh yeah. I made a a two-hour documentary about that and the creation. Like museum. what? I'm mad jealous right now. Start it's just a stream of a consciousness. Nightmare. What makes your head explode? about the Ark Encounter. Oh the fact God. that it's taxpayer funded. Yeah, that, truly, that truly, <laughs> actually, truly. The, the tax stuff is shady. And like, I've looked into it, I've tried to suss it out, and there are different people saying different things, but mm. no one is denying that it's shady. Yeah. Okay, oh my God, what well, are the problems it, with the Ark it, Encounter? Me, what me, is it, Hang on, let me, before, before you go down this, what is bound to be an amazing scientific trail. <laughs> I think- I'm barely holding it when, in. So, some people who are saying, what do you mean taxpayer funded? Um, the Ark Encounter and the organizations that fund it, the organization behind it, is conveniently a religious or church organization when they need tax-exempt status, and it's suspiciously a business whenever they want... It's a kind. To sell. It's a kind. 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 <laughs> so go ahead. Your yeah. head explodes. Oh, my gosh. Okay. I mean, so what's the problem with the Ark Encounter? What isn't a problem with the Ark Encounter? So we were just talking about the kinds. I want to emphasize something very important here. There is no criteria for a kind. As Forrest said, it's it's roughly the family level. Sometimes it's the genus level. Sometimes it's the, the class level. Who knows? It depends on what they need. But what we do in conventional, le legitimate science, I would say, is we, we utilize genetics and we cross-check that with things like the fossil record and morphology. So why is it then that we have an ape kind, according to the Ark Encounter, even though humans and chimpanzees and bonobos shared 99, or sorry, 98.8%, roughly 99% of our coding DNA and 96% of our full comparative genome, uh, and we're not the same kind. But African and Asian elephants 
those are the same kind. They're within the proboscidean group, right, or mm -hmm. a proboscidean group, and they're only 95.7% similar. The fact that chimpanzees aren't in 50 different kinds based on genetics alone. That, that, Absolutely. You pick any two random chimpanzees. They're just so diverse. They're going to be more genetically diverse than the most diverse-looking people you can possibly Absolutely. think about. It, Absolutely. They, they have, we are insanely, laughably inbred animals. And we, <laughs> we are more similar to chimps and they to us, as well as us to bonobos and they to us, yep. than any of us three is to a gorilla. And yet they yes. lump gorillas and chimps and orangutans into a single group, the pongens, right? Which is absolutely Who asinine. the hell came up with that? It, it's, it's a super outdated... T anyways, it, it, it sounds like they're just talking about orangutans. They are. Yeah, what? they're just co-opting the term, accepting it. I haven't even heard exactly right. I haven't even been there, so you're telling me stuff I don't even know. No, this no, it's it's absolutely insane. They they have groups that make absolutely no sense. I've talked about the proboscideans. The way that they organize the elephants, right? Your 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 elephant type animals, elephants and their kin. The way that they've got this thing structured, you have to have, after these critters get off the ark, in order to explain the proboscideans that are definitively in what they classify as post-flood rock, because remember, at least the past 550 million years worth of time, at least, happened during the flood and accumulated during the flood. So anything basically after the Eocene, I guess it's more like, yeah, it's more like, it's from like 550 million years ago to 65.5 million years ago. So after the dinosaurs, all that is post-flood. So anything that lived during that time had to rapidly speciate in such a way to explain, or to work rather, with, with Noah's Ark. The way that this works with our proboscideans, animals that have long gestation and take forever to, to grow up and die, is every proboscidean to explain the diversity that we see today just in the fossil record and just that we have access to, Every critter has to be a different species from its from its mother, which has to be a different species from its grandmother. We are having a speciation event every generation. This is not possible with the recombination rates that, that we know of. Uh, I mean, it's 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 madness. It's absolutely madness. And then you've got the issue of this is my favorite that I talk about as much as humanly possible. You've got the heat problem, right? Because they're cramming. 550 effectively million years worth of geologic time, or at least 500 million years worth of geologic time, and saying all of that happened during the flood. They have to explain all of that geologic column, right? You've got to add in the heat for limestone hardening, for, for, for limestone formation, excuse me, for magma hardening. Every impact event that has ever happened has to be crammed into that single year of the flood. All of it in one year of the flood, right? The Chickslub impactor that killed the dinosaurs, that's one impact event. And we have hundreds. Mm -hmm. All of them have to be in the single year of the flood. Not to mention, they have to explain radiometric dates, right? So when we say the Earth is 4.5 billion years old, it's because of radiometric dating. This is rooted in the radioactive decay law. It's a very simple concept. And the way that we know that it works is because the global fossil fuel industry relies on this to find fossil fuels like oil, coal, and gas. If it didn't work to base and model to find these resources, we wouldn't use it. And yet, we do. In fact, fun fact, creationists tried to make their own oil exploration. They called it Zion Oil, and it is not finding any oil. Let's put it that way. <laughs> Anyways, so to explain the, the, the radiometric dates, they have to have at least that 500 million years worth of radioactive decay crammed super fast in that one single year of the flood. This is so much heat that you're going to vaporize the granitic crust of the Earth numerous times over. We're talking, I believe it's four times 10 raised 29 for the past 500 million years. If you want to include the full Monty, 4.5 billion years of accelerated nuclear decay, we're, we're talking um, 1.68 times 10 raised 30 joules, right? This is over 80,000 
H-bombs per square kilometer of the planet. It is untenable to the nth degree. It's so bad that Answers in Genesis has an article where they're trying to explain it, and they even had the rate team, which I'm sure you've heard of, some guys who are trying to solve how radiometric dating didn't work. And back in 2005, their conclusion, a bunch of young Earth creationist PhD geologists was, yep, it looks like a bunch of radioactive decay has occurred. It must have been accelerated nuclear decay. And to explain that, we're going to need exotic future physics, right? Or it's got to be a miracle. And this is Ken Ham, who's always the one saying that creationism is science. Mm -hmm. Absolutely not. The heat problem doesn't work. It completely negates um, the, the, the global flood, as it were, in young Earth creationism as a whole. And on top of that, you've got the inconsistent kinds, which, of course, doesn't make any sense. Take a few issues yourself for us, please. I was going to say, they, they, you can look at, so like just what she's talking about there with radiometric decay and how that's going to like like melt half the planet. You can look at the moon right now and see why that's a problem. So when the moon broke off from Earth, massive impact broke off this huge, massive rock, it took a lot of like young Earth pieces with it because the Earth was still just in the, in the this is during the, 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 the oh my gosh. Uh, the 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 bombard the heavy bombardment during the Hadean that's what it was the Hadean period I almost forgot that word Jesus um, but this is during the heavy bombardment we get this huge piece of Earth broken off so we haven't undergone a lot of decay yet you've got now this massive isotopic sample floating out in space rapidly cools because it has no internal core and then undergoes all of that decay. That creates massive lava flows and huge geometric like changes on the surface of the moon. If you look up at the moon right now, you'll notice there's a lot of light parts and there's these big dark swaths. Those big dark swaths are the youngest parts of the moon. Those are magma flows. The dusty light parts are all the old stuff left over. The moon changed its physical form and shape and has visible evidence today of that much radioactive decay happening in that fast on that little tiny area. If that was true of the Earth, we would, well, I would say we would see it, but we wouldn't because it wouldn't freaking exist. Like it would have destroyed <laughs> us. It's madness. And then when you say, you know, the, with this idea of kinds to just lump things in together for convenience, that's shit that we stopped doing a couple hundred years ago. We stopped doing it because we got better evidence. And that's the big line here is that when you come to an actual scientist, when you talk to actual science about like, this looks this way, I know, but actually it turns out it's not that way. We used to lump in uh, elephants and hippopotamuses all up in this group that we called pachyderms. And pachyderm literally just means thick skinned. They looked a lot alike. They lived in the same kind of areas. They had similar features. We're going to call them all the pachyderms. This is the pachyderms. Look at them all together. And we tried to trace the evolutionary history of the pachyderms. And then, mainly through genetic evidence, we found out that they're not even a little bit related. And a, a hippopotamus is more closely related to a blue whale than it is to an elephant. And so clearly there's a big difference here. And so now we use words like proboscidean, you know, nose haver, basically, <laughs> is what that is. And hippopotamuses are some other thing. And because you know, we put hippopotamuses back where they belong in Artiodactyla. Um, so a hippopotamus and a blue whale and a deer are more closely related to each other than any one of those is related to a horse. Sounds fucking nuts, right? But that's what the genetic evidence and even the morphological evidence shows. We don't just say kind because it's easy. We don't just put them in a group and call it an order because it's easy. We have to have a reason for that. And like systematics and cladistics is still a thing. If you look at like most biology departments at most major universities, go to the faculty and see what they work on. 
Half of them, if not more, focus on systematics because we're learning new incredible stuff about how we're related to everything else and how everything else is related to everything else. And we have to restructure our models all the time to make it fit reality rather than desperately trying to force reality to fit our models. You That's mentioned the moon works. and Noah's Ark in the same five minute period. I don't suppose you ever saw this guy on YouTube who uh, claimed that the craters in the moon were created. Oh, yes. After... Uh, Noah's flood and the water flew out toward the moon. You guys watch way more creationist shit than I do. <laughs> I got to comment on this. Because, yeah, yeah. Because that there's a there's a very not safe for work name for that the, that people have started calling it. Am I allowed to say it? You can say whatever you want. Okay. I've said uh, fuck like the, four the, times. the colloquial word for this is the lunar bukaki theory, <laughs> right? I'm not kidding. That's what people have started calling it. And this. This explanation, I'm about to blow your mind. This explanation for the peppering, the cratering mm -hmm. on the moon being Earth's ejecta comes from a guy, Walt Brown's hydroplate hypothesis. What I was talking about earlier, all that heat, that's for the conventional CPT, what AID holds to, catastrophic plate tectonics, the much more normal flood model proposed by young Earth creationists today. Walt Brown is fringe. You wanna know how much heat his model releases? It's the equivalent of 5,000 trillion one megaton hydrogen bombs. Oh my God. <laughs> His theory allows for 5,000 hydrogen bombs per cubic kilometer of the planet. And those are his numbers, not mine. So, and of course his answer is, he, he's got this wild answer that I've, I've talked about. Uh, his solution to get rid of all the heat actually requires the Earth to be in a plasma state. So of course it doesn't work. Uh, but critically, some of the stuff you were talking about there, Forrest, right? Like science, in a conventional sense, right? Like what, what we tend to do, ideally what we tend to see is, is people will make hypotheses and predictions and then they will explore the idea to see if it meets those predictions. Science predicts and creationism accommodates. Yeah. This is what we see over and over and over again. Show me one where a young earth creationist or any creationist, an ID proponent has made a prediction and that prediction has come to fruition through, through investigation and peer review. Yeah. It doesn't happen. I've yet to, been, to have been shown a single one. I get shown potential, right? Or, but it's always just, a, you can't just make the prediction. The prediction has to come to fruition. Yeah. But we see these predictions occurring in paleontology and geology. Every time you fill up your car, that's a prediction come to fruition using radiometric dating and basin modeling. This is carboniferous rock. It's probably rich in coal. So I think I'll go ahead and drill here, assuming that evolutionary theory in the ancient age of the earth is in fact legitimate. Oh, there's coal, check. It's the 500 trillionth time that we've seen support for the, the paradigm here, yeah. right? Every time you fill up your car, you're, you're validating that. But one of my favorite examples, and I know you know this from Forrest, is, is the discovery of Tiktaalik, right? Oh yeah. One of our famous transitional species was, was a hypothesis that was generated by Neil Shubin, a paleontologist who also, I believe he does some um, Evo Devo stuff as well. He does, he, he calls himself an evolutionary yeah. biologist now because that's his main focus. Right, yeah. right, that makes sense, yeah, because he, he wrote a bunch of some assembly required in urine or fish and stuff like you that. Um, so, so he thought to himself, okay, we, if we did in fact come from this kind of Eustenopteron, lobe-finned fish type critter that crawls up onto the land in the middle of Devonian or a little bit earlier, right? Uh, we should find evidence for that. We should find a transitional species that links Eustenopteron and I believe it was Ichthyostega or Acanthostega, something comes. It's Ichthyostega, I'm pretty sure. 99% right. sure. I think you're right. That it comes afterwards. There should be something that links the two because Ichthyostega looks like this classic amphibian. It's got four legs, it's got digits, uh, it's got pectoral muscles, it's got lungs, it's got a long tail, and it's got a flat head with eyes on the top. Eustenopteron is a lobe-finned fish. It looks like a coelacanth, right? It doesn't have the digits. It's got fins. Um, it's got some characteristics of what tetrapods would have later, but it mostly just looks like a bony fish. So we should find something that links the two. So Neil Shubin, he says to himself, I bet, based off of the geology, 
the best place to find this would be Greenland. Because at the time of the Devonian, this would have been a, a, a veritable paradise, equatorial and, and lush. That's where we should look. And I bet the animal that we're going to find is going to basically look like a fishapod, a mix between a fish and a tetrapod, right? Maybe it's got some characteristics of a tetrapod and some characteristics of a fish, for lack of a better word. He heads up there, they dig for several seasons, and just when they're getting ready to give up, they find it, Tiktaalik. It is an animal whose head looks very, very tetrapod-like. It's got eyes on the top, just like what comes next, just like Ichthyostega. It's got a long, flat head. It's got pectoral muscles, so it can push itself up mm -hmm. to catch its breath, right? It's got a clear humerus, clear radius, and an ulna, and it's beginning to form clear digits. But the wrist isn't quite there yet. It's close, but it's not quite there. The back fins look like fins. Right? And the body is flat, but it's still rather hydrodynamic, suggesting that this thing is still spending a lot of time in the water. And the kicker, it's got lungs and it's got gills. And it is found in the exact location that it should be if evolutionary theory is legitimate. Yeah, and that's such an important thing to like talking about predictions is like it's hard to overstate how much that matters because a lot of what I talk about with science is like, you know, we 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 change our minds with new evidence and we're always looking for new ways to, but like that's the next step. That's why science is useful. We can know all sorts of things, but what science does for us is say, all right, so if this is true, then this other thing should be true too. And if you can't under like if you don't accept that, all of agriculture and everything to do with medicine is based on that. We're going to treat this disease this way because if we don't, it's going to do that because we understand how this works. And then we do the thing and the thing works. And that's because science and like that is such an important step in this whole process. And like scientific discovery is completely abundant in that. This idea that if it's going to work like this, then we should be able to find this next thing. And then we freaking do. Um, if you give me time, I'm sure we can come up with 50 more examples. But like the idea that that science is this stagnant thing that we're just waiting to be told what to think, which is what I hear quite a bit, that we're, we're dogmatic, that we're waiting to be told by the next expert or whatever like that is nuts. Because when we look at like, for example, you know, the, the discovery of fossils in the first place completely changed everything that we thought about everything. And then that began the whole field of, okay, well... If that's true, then I bet we could check over here as well. And oh shit. And I bet here's this really big ditch. And I bet we could find animals that look, oh yeah, no, there they are. And it's just again and again and again and again, teaching us what we know about the world today. It's, 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 it's an active story that we're a part of, that we get to participate in, that we get to go learn more about. You have no reason to ever be bored. There is something exciting to learn. And if you learn what we know now, you'll know what we should know next and go do that thing. It's it's unbelievably cool. And I wish more people ex got, like, got to be excited about it. You know what I mean? Okay, we're far from done. More with Forrest and Erica in just a second. Hang on. This episode is brought to you by Kia's first three-row all-electric SUV, the Kia EV9. With available all-wheel drive and seating for up to seven adults. With zero to 60 speed that thrills you one minute. And available lounge seats that unwind you the next. Visit kia.com slash EV9 to learn more. Ask your Kia dealer for availability. No system, no matter how advanced, can compensate for all driver error and or driving conditions. Always drive safely. Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? 
Ah, oh, sorry. We were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. Chumbacasino.com has over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No With Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandsLots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Don't forget, I've got a second podcast, no religion, no politics, just interesting, short-form, five-minute true stories about cool stuff, ancient history, the headlines of last week, true crime, weird news, and so much more. Just search for it on all major podcast apps, True Stories with Seth Andrews, or go to the website, truestoriespodcast.com. Continuing my conversation with educators and science communicators Erica, or Gutsik Gibbon, and Forrest Valkai. That's one thing that I was taught when I was growing up is, you know, science is like a, it's almost like a, a, a set of rules or, or a specific concrete thing, an object, a never-changing object, which may be religion projecting into it. I don't know. But but wasn't it Sagan who said that science is really a way of thinking, right? So yeah, it's, it's a process. It's more of a, a process of yeah. understanding the world. Yeah, science is a living, breathing thing. That's always it's, People like to pretend like it's this big book of knowledge that we need to know something, we go check science. But that's not what it is at all. A minute ago, I was talking about you know pr- predictions. You should be able to go find XYZ thing. And, and I said we can have a million examples. Here's one. Uh, when Darwin was, was exploring around South America, he found this amazing orchid, this flower, with this huge long tube coming off of it with a little tiny bit of nectar down at the very bottom. And we know from looking at other similar flowers that they have a little nectar tube and there's a moth that comes along and sticks its weird long proboscis in there and slurps up that was in there and that helps it pollinate the next thing. And this thing has like this insanely long tube, like a foot and a half, I can't remember how long they are. It's massive. And so Darwin is like, okay, well, if I'm right, if this works, there should be probably just one specific species that can actually get to that at the bottom of that. And that's the only way this thing is able to reproduce. Cut forward like almost 200 years and we find it. And it's called the Darwin's hawk moth, named after that prediction. And it's this one species of moth with an insane proboscis that's like 10 times longer than its body. And the whole, its whole job, its niche is just to pollinate this one thing. That is its only way of getting food. And by doing so, it propagates this flower and that's the only way this flower is propagated. And so they co-evolved together. That's science in action. He was able to make prediction hundreds of years earlier. Same thing with Einstein. When Einstein was figuring out relativity, he looked at this as like, ah, crap, man, if this is true, then there's got to be these things called black holes out there. Mm. Nuts, right? And nobody believed it. Skip forward a hundred years later, we see one. (laughs) Like, oh, crap, you know? Get a picture of it. Exactly. And like, this is the first actual physical observable. Like, we've seen the things that they do, but actually seeing one 
now, as best as you can see something that absorbs all light. But like, that's the whole thing, is that science is something that's, that's alive. It's always being changed and modified and tweaked and worked. It's a standard process, and the process boils down to prove it. You know, prove it so well that you can no longer disprove yourself. You never, ever accept a hypothesis. You fail to reject a hypothesis. Mm -hmm. You work your ass off to tell everybody how wrong you are. And when you can't do that anymore, we'll do it for you. And when <laughs> we can't do it anymore, then we'll all start testing it and saying, okay, well, if this is right, what else is there? And we find example after example after example of how this is right, and then it becomes a theory. Well, what I really like, though, is the fact that even when we come upon something we accept, like the avalanche of evidence for evolution, at no point do we weld our perception shut so that at some point we find out that we're living in the matrix or a giant snow globe, right? Well, that's the thing is those are unfalsifiable claims. So we have rules for those in science. As much as you're making a joke, we have a standard procedure have for a, if we're going to think about that. You have a giant snow globe rule. That's I, good to know. I right? love this. I really, really was looking for an end to bring this up because falsifiability <laughs> is so critical. Kill your darlings. When you have a hypothesis, you have a model, your goal should be to throw absolutely everything at it to see if you can take it apart yeah. piece by piece. Yeah. And if it still withstands that, and then as Forrest said, if it withstands the peer review of others also trying to deconstruct it, then you might just be onto something. And part of what makes evolution, I think, so robust is, because we hear from creationists a lot, oh, you assume evolution to prove evolution. Predictions should not play out, they should not come to fruition with a given assumption if that assumption is unfounded. Otherwise, you've got a massive coincidence on your hands. Mm -hmm. But something about evolu er, evolution, something about evolution that is intelligent design, actually, unfortunately, they, they tend to go hand in hand these days. Um, but intelligent design actually is falsifiable. Uh, for a long time, I said, there's, it's, it's not science, it doesn't have a model, it's impossible to falsify, but it doesn't have a model, this is true. It is falsifiable, and we have falsified it. Um, earlier, Forrest was talking about uh, nested hierarchies, right? So these, these hierarchies that we have that exist where organisms in the same way that you and I are primates, we are also mammals, we are also um, chordates all the way leading up to eukaryotes. Well, these nested hierarchies exist in genetics as well. And you alluded to this earlier. You said, you know, creationists tend to point to that. They say intelligent design advocates as well. It's not common descent. It's common design. Mm -hmm. And there's a very easy way to falsify this. I want to thank my friend Dan of the Creation Myths YouTube channel. He laid this out very plainly. Um, I really, really enjoyed how he did it. It's simple to falsify this. You, you simply look at the genome, which is primarily non-functional. What we should see is we should look at the genomes of organisms. And if this is common design, these nested hierarchies should exist in the functional regions. This is a prediction of evolutionary theory, of course, uh, and an accommodation of intelligent design that they try to call a prediction, when really they just have to accommodate for today. And those nested hierarchies have been a real thorn in their side since the, the advent of genetics. However, if common descent is true, we should see a nested hierarchy also in the non-functional regions because we inherit all the baggage of our ancestors, whether it does something or not, right? Vestigial structures are, are the, um, the, the sort of morphological, morphologic representation of this, but it exists in your genes as well. You have stuff that doesn't do anything at all. And yet, if intelligent design truly is responsible for these nested hierarchies, then we should not find a nested hierarchy in the non-functional regions because they don't do anything. It's not common design at that point. There is no function to this non-functional DNA. And what do we find? We find that there is a nested hierarchy in the functional regions of the genome and especially in the non-functional regions. 
Intelligent design expressly has the opposite prediction of this finding, right? These nested hierarchies should not exist in genes that do nothing. Or else God is simply deceptive, right? He's pulling, he's yanking our chain. He's just making it look exactly like evolution. Why do we carry a broken gulo gene that occurred back in the Eocene? What's the point? Why is it broken in the same exact place in all haplorine primates in the same exact way, right? Is that just a coincidence? Why does that form a nested hierarchy as well if it does nothing, right? Guinea pigs have a broken gulo gene. It's not broken in the same place or in the same way, and yet it's nested in their groups as well in a way that's separate from primates. Same thing with chiropterans, bats, certain chiropterans. This is a very simple way to falsify um, intelligent design, and they won't touch it. I've never seen them touch it. Yeah. Why is there a nested hierarchy in functional and non-functional regions alike? Because at this point, your hypothesis has been taken behind the barn and shot, right? <laughs> there's, there's nothing you can do. You've got to come up. And this is, this is where science comes in, as Four said. The greatest strength of science is this mutability. Because if you're truly doing science, you look at your, your mangled corpse of a hypothesis and you say, I'm glad that happened because yeah. now I can come up with something better. Absolutely. That's the best thing in the world. What have you, you noticed how uh, the stories abound? You know, Darwin on his deathbed said, I was wrong. And he dropped to his knees and accepted <laughs> yeah, yeah. Jesus. Einstein, right? You guys oh, ever yeah. heard that yeah. one about uh, sure. Einstein? Uh, some classroom thing where uh, he was the student mm -hmm. defending God. I mean, there's all kind of fiction out there. Yeah. Have you guys uh, heard those mm -hmm. Yeah, even if they're true, it doesn't mean anything. I don't know why those are shared. I think I think those are shared for the same reason that most like dogmatic things are shared. Like, well, my preacher said it, so it must be true. And so you hear me talking about Darwin, and you assume, oh, okay, so he worships Darwin. So if Darwin was wrong, then he's wrong too. And it's like, no, it's been about 200 years since Darwin. He was wrong about a lot of shit. We don't really care. We're doing other things now. He was a great guy, loved the beard, very interesting. But now we have these things that he had no idea about. My man didn't know about genetics. Didn't know anything he about, know about and genetics. And he could have, and he could have. And he didn't. He could have. He could have read the paper, and he left it sitting there. And that's fine. I haven't read a lot of things too, but we damn, man. It would have been. You bring up something. I'm going to interject here. There is a tendency, though, and there was in my own home, my own life, my own mind, to use a religious model to talk about scientific things. So it's like, oh, you are a Darwinist, right? Mm -hmm. I, I didn't study Darwin's. I didn't read his book and benefit from, you know, this groundbreaking research he had done. I worship Darwin. Yeah, yeah. Or he had become my prophet or my savior. Have you yeah. noticed that, you know, people tend to ascribe these religious models to non-religious things, especially science? Well, it's well, because, opposite, you go first. No, no, no. I, I, my thing is short. I was going to say, if, if that's the case, then how come the overwhelming majority of religious people in the United States today actually accept evolution? Why do we have people like Ken Miller? Why do we have um, folks like... Um, uh, backer or paleontologist, right? Why do these people exist? If if Darwin is their god, why can they hold to a very clear, very uh, well-founded body of science and still have their own religious beliefs? And right, this is the, the Catholic all Church. The it only took them a couple thousand years, they mind got you. There. <laughs> but finally, the Pope's <laughs> like, okay, yeah, I okay, guess. well, we buy I guess. it. Yeah. Also, yeah. sorry about Galileo and all yeah. that. Yeah. <laughs> this is our penance. <laughs> we kind of took the L on that one, yeah. <laughs> But that's that's like the the beautiful thing about it is that like when when you when you talk about science it is this this story it's this idea it's this discovery it's this process living thing when a religious person talks about science it is as dogmatic as they are it, it, when you are brought up to only believe something based on faith and authority it's really difficult to get outside of that and this is something that you know I've I've talked about 
quite a bit before when you see people who come out of religion and they deconstruct and they're very prone to conspiracies and like, like, you know, conspiratorial thinking because they just learned, well, if I can question the creator of the universe and he goes away, I can question the government and 9-11. And if birds are real too, <laughs> do those also now become a thing? And so like you have what you're confronted with here. It's not that these people are stupid. They're not, they're not, you know, I hate it when people talk about religion as some mental illness, something like this. These people have been deprived of a really, really valuable tool of asking good questions in a productive way, asking how you know what you know, and like really learning the details of like how these things are structured. It's not just a fairy tale. It's not just a fantasy. It's not just a guess. We talked at dinner about if you've never been stumped by a third grader, you've never enjoyed teaching. (laughs) <laughs> One of the, the defining moments in my scientific career, I was hired to teach some third grade class about chemistry. We started to talk about what atoms are. And the kid was like, how do you know that? And I was like, yeah, I'm sitting there at 22. And I'm like, I don't know. I, I heard it in the book. And you go home and you learn. Okay, so how do we know what atoms are then? How do we know what they're made of then? How do we know how big those things are then? How do we know they're put together this way? And if you take a college chemistry class, it's all there. You tell the story about, oh, we used to think they were this, and then we had this model, and then this model, and then this model, and this is the best model we have. They don't look like this, though. And it's just, you know, <laughs> we, you learn that there's a tremendous amount of weirdness and nuance and fuzziness, and that if your model doesn't match up to nature, that's your problem, not nature's problem. Um, and when you come at that from a religious perspective, it says this in the book, so it's that. Well, it's a completely different way of thinking. Yeah, and and I I totally agree. And you know, I I want to be clear, and I, I know we're likely on the same page. You kind of alluded to this earlier. Mm. Science is for everyone. It's yes. dynamic and mutable and beautiful. And try to combine those words together. Um, dimutable. 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 Wow, we just gave birth to a new kind. It's <laughs> a, again. Yeah. Yeah. That's a rapid species. I brought us all the way back to kind. Yeah, see, see that? Don't try that at home, kids. Yeah, you don't want. <laughs> no, to. go ahead. No, go it's ahead. it's it's beautiful and and for everyone, right? And there are some, you know, I'll, I'll speak for myself here. There are some incredible scientists out there who are religious. These are people who know how to kind of compartmentalize their thinking and and take science and work with it on its own level, right? On its own terms. Like you said, nature, you can't force it to say anything. It's going to say what it's going to say. Data is present and we're just here to try to make sense of it. Right. So I do believe that that there are folks out there who can who can be religious and be incredible scientists. God knows there are plenty of them. Um, The problem comes when when you have these folks who who take that dogmatic perspective, you know, and, and by calling those who accept conventional science Darwinists, they show their own hand, right? Because if they don't have a, a supreme guiding force that tells them what to think, they're revealing that they don't have anything at all. Yeah. Um, and that is unbelievably tragic, I think. Well, he had brought up Stephen Jay Gould earlier, who once said that um, he believed that science and religion were non-overlapping magisteria. Mm. I interpret that as, uh, you know, apples and oranges. They can perhaps even play next to each other. Science and religion. Uh, I guess we have to define religion. How about a fundamental 
spiritual superstition based religion. I mean, how does that how do those two play in the same sandbox? That's my big the problem. Thing, my, my big issue, because you know, like Erica said, there are plenty of religious science. I've worked for some religious scientists out there. I, I once worked as an educator under a, a, an atomic and molecular physicist who was also a practicing, a practicing Catholic. And when I asked him, like, how does that work in your head? He said, you know, the beauty that I see in the universe is worthy of the God that I believe in. And, you know, I, I can't fault him. That's very pretty and that's very poetic and that's fine. If that makes him happy, I'm not going to tell him, you know, not to do that. The, the issue that I have with it and the reason why I agree that these things don't work together, they're not compatible, is because it requires you, as Erica said, to compartmentalize. You have to have a completely different set of rules, a different way of thinking about things for this versus for that. And there are sometimes in life things that have special regulations and special you can't apply the rules of quantum mechanics to, to you know, the, the astrophysics and it's going to be different. And, you know, classical mechanics are called classical for a reason. Like you, you can't you see oh, it's uh, not a physicist, but like you, you, you can't overlap these things. But the basic rules of it are the same. The prove it principle remains. And to say for this, I have evidence. For the age of the earth, I have evidence. For the, the way that, that, that the immune system works, I have evidence. For the way that antibiotics work, I have evidence. For the way that evolution works, I have evidence. For the way that, that, that atoms fuse or do fission, for all these things, I know it works. I have these models and I can see it and I can test it and I can predict it and it works. But for this one thing, I just feel it. I, I don't think that that's a healthy way to be. It boils down to, I think, how, how do we respond to the unanswered questions? Do we, do we look at them and say, what can we do here, right? Where can we take this? Or do we look at it and say, an unanswered question, it is unanswerable, yeah. right? And, and I think that these are two very different ways of, of thinking. Ultimately, if someone is going to take the religious perspective, I do think they're, they're looking at a lot of the unexplained phenomena of the universe. And even if they accept the, all of conventional science, mm -hmm. they do take those unanswered questions and they say, we can't figure this out without God involved, right? right. And, and I think that that's a fundamentally different way of looking at things. As Forrest said, you know, I, I, do, I, I am of the opinion that these things can play side by side. Can they intermingle? I don't know the answer to that question. I truly don't. Um, I think I think it's I think it'll be interesting to see how people react as we continue to learn more, especially about our universe, as we continue to get these James Webb photos. What happens if we find bacteria on Mars? Right? What happens if we pick up the signal of a Dyson sphere somewhere else? I think this is going to rock a lot of worlds as we really find out um, how small we are, and in in that, how much we have to learn. And how lucky we are that we live in a time that we can, that we can sit and, and marvel at this and say, look how many unanswered questions. What a great time to be alive. Yeah. It's, it's beautiful because for every, like, that's the wonderful thing about science, the thing I love about it the most. Every single time I answer a question, two more questions come up. <laughs> every single time. <laughs> it's, it's frustrating it never, and awesome. <laughs> exactly. I, I'm never at a point where I'm satisfied. I, I, it, it, it burns me. I hate not knowing. I can't stand not knowing things. Mm -hmm. And every time I learn something new, I realize there's more stuff that I don't know. 
And, you know, when you talk to somebody who's coming from this very, you know, very religious, very, very, you know, uh, far away from science. Somebody, I, I've been told this a million times, well, just look at the trees oh, and yeah. the clouds yeah. and you see a flower and how beautiful it is. You scientists just try to pick it apart and you, you don't see the beauty. This is the majesty of God and all this stuff. And like, no, what you're missing out though, I see so much more. When I see a flower, I'm not just seeing the pretty colors and the shapes. I also see that if I were looking at a different wavelength, this would be striped with different patterns and UV light that attracts other insects and that they're actually much more diverse than we see. And I see all the chemical pathways going on in here and the way the photosynthesis works and the way that this thing is perfectly tuned to the environment that it's in and the light coming down from it. Is it a C3 or a C4 plant or a CAM plant? And it makes it totally different if it's spatially or temporally isolated between the light independent and light dependent reactions. I see the evolutionary history of this thing for the past two million 200 million years of co-evolving with flying insects. I see all these different pieces of it. I see it for what it really is on the tiny, tiny scale and on the massive millions of years scale. And it's pretty. So how are you going to sit here and say, I'm missing out, man. You're missing out. There's so much more cool stuff to learn. And I guarantee if somebody came at me with that creationist argument and I could sit them down for the next four you know, semesters and go through every single <laughs> part of, of this, how this thing works and like really get them to a level where they deeply understand it, they too would be wholly unsatisfied with how much they don't yet know and they'd be dying to know more about that flower because it's so much cooler than they could ever imagine. You can see why I expected the universe to explode. <laughs> it has not happened. I'm a little disappointed. This means we must meet again. We're raining oh, it in right now. Someday. We're holding it together. We, we are. It's true. I, we're, we're doing some tongue biting over here. I know that for a fact. I, I'll speak for myself. I am for sure. Because there's so much to say. Dude, I'm, I'm trying. There's so much to say. We could probably go on and on, but I'm going to call it here. Forrest and Erica, you two make learning fun. And I think uh, that's something we need so much more of. You know, your enthusiasm is contagious. And you're able to, I mean, occasionally I, you do overwhelm me. I feel the drool coming down and I feel like my left eye starts to twitch. I'm like, oh my God. Get us a whiteboard, bro. I'm, I'm, See what happens. I'm, I'm, start smoking. I'm <laughs> but at the same time, I, I can play. I can play along in the sandbox. And uh, that enthusiasm is contagious in my mind. And I'm sure to our viewers and listeners as well. Thank you both for everything you do. That's our pleasure, man. Thanks for having us. Yeah, that means we're doing something right. Right, seriously. Thank yeah. you. Follow The Thinking Atheist on Facebook and Twitter. For a complete archive of podcasts and videos, products like mugs and t-shirts featuring The Thinking Atheist logo, links to atheist pages and resources, and details on upcoming free thought events and conventions, log on to our website, thethinkingatheist.com. With lucky landslots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.